This weekend is a, a difficult weekend in the baseball world. The Angels somehow have been beating the Dodgers. I can acknowledge that. Yeah. But I wanted to open with a baseball story <laughs> in honor of that and the, the, the July 4th potluck next week. Tommy Lasorda was a longtime Dodgers manager, um, great manager, taught Mike Sosha everything he knows. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in there. And he was describing his battle with bad habits. And, and he had different habits and and he was describing some of, of how he overcame those. And he said that one day he took a pack of cigarettes from his pocket and stared at it and said, who's stronger, you or me? And he said, the answer was I am. It was me. So I stopped smoking. Then another time he took um, some alcohol and he put it in front of him and said, who's stronger, you or me? And he said, well, I am. He stopped drinking. Then he went on a diet. And he looked at a big plate of linguine with clam sauce and said, who's stronger, you or me? And a little clam looked up at him and said, I am. (laughs) And he said, I just can't beat linguine. (laughs) And it's interesting when we think through our habits, when we think through the things that capture us and, and hold us, there are often things that we struggle to overcome. There are often things that we look at and say, who's stronger, you or me? And they say, I am. And we just can't beat it. That's true sometimes with habitual sin. With those things in our life that we, we can't overcome, the sins that keep coming back and keep coming back. Maybe it's a, a sin of pride that we just think, think that we're better than people around us and we somehow need to grace them with our opinions. Or maybe it's a sin of a critical spirit where we are always looking for things to criticize and to pick apart. And maybe it's, it's sins of, of thoughts and of, of um, anger. And maybe it's sins of temper and, and whatever it is, but those are the kinds of sins that tend to be very difficult to overcome. Because they reach into our heart and they they strangle us and they hold us in bondage. This morning, though, we want to look at the life of Christ where He clearly, clearly says, I have authority over that bondage. I've taken care of it. And I'm here for you. If you will live for me, if you will follow me, we can deal with this. And so we want to look at this story realizing that we all experience the struggle with sin. And in the story, we'll look at the struggle over Satan and the demonic. But we all struggle with sin. And even Paul himself said, you know, the things that I I know I shouldn't do, I do. And and the things that I know I should do, I don't do. And, And it was the constant struggle that marks the process of sanctification and marks the process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Because I am convinced as we expand our understanding of what Christ did on the cross, of who He is, that we then begin to overcome some of those things in our lives. 
or rather He begins to overcome some of those things in our lives as we allow Him, as we let Him. Mark chapter 5. As we talked last week, we're in the middle of four faith narratives or power narratives where Jesus is intentionally taking His disciples to school and the school of life and saying, okay, we need to broaden who you think that I am. We need to broaden your view of Jesus Christ because you don't get it yet. You don't understand what it means that I'm the Messiah. And so two weeks ago when we looked at the first story, it was the calming of the sea. And, and we saw the storm come up and, and it wasn't just an ordinary storm. It was a, a storm that made these experienced fishermen that were used to the sea quiver and shake like little children. But with a word, Jesus said, stop, stop, and the sea calmed. And we saw that Jesus is sovereign over the circumstances we face. Nothing surprises him. Nothing has more power than he does. And the disciples responded by, who is it? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And so we get to chapter 5, which is the end of that same journey across the lake. So, so we just had in the middle of the sea the near-death experience. We just had Jesus saying, your faith is weak. You need to grow your faith. See who I am. And then we get to the other side and we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the, the country of the Gerasenes. Now to understand the story, we need to understand a little bit of geography. Any geography fans here? We have maps this morning. Let's put up some maps. Hmm. It's up there, really. There, oh, that's much better. And Jesus probably, like we said two weeks ago, is coming from Capernaum. That was his base of operations. That's where Peter's house was. He possibly had a house there by this time. But he, he's coming from Capernaum and ministering all the way in this area here. So it was somewhere in here that he was on the boat, pulled out a little bit, and ministering to the crowds. And then he says, let's go to the other side. And in this case, to the Gerasenes. And the Gerasenes is a term for this whole area. There's lots of debate. Well, is it a city? But we, it, it's the area of the Gerasenes. And so they took the boat that went from here across to here. About five miles, a couple hour journey. And, and in the middle of that, they, they experienced the, the storm. But it, it seems so close, but this area is significant because it's a different target. It's a different area that he's reaching. If you look down here, the word Decapolis. Any idea what that means? Ten cities. Deca, ten, polis, city. And ten cities, and it was named for ten major cities that were in this region. And, and this region was a Gentile region. So in Galilee over here, we have the Jewish region, and, and you have all the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and that represented the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But then to come across to the Gentile area, that's huge. For us, we're like, oh, he took a trip. For the Jews, they would have been like, you went where? What? And, and so this was, was huge for the disciples to see because it represented Jesus expanding his ministry to the nations expanding his ministry to many of us and, and sharing the gospel with them. And so he went across to the Decapolis, to the, the Jewish or the, the Gentile area there. And um, that area was under the protection of Syria. It was a little bit, it was ruled by a different governor. And so even though it's so close, it was a, a whole different area. But let's read on. That's verse 1. So we, we understand where he's going and the different group that he's going to. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, so they get to the other side, he steps out of the boat, and immediately, it's one of those immediately in Mark, whenever we see that, we know he's, he's in his storytelling mode, and he's tying things together. And immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And so in that area there was the, the tombs that you were unclean if you went into, and so the people that were demon-possessed or had unclean spirits, that's where they ended up living and, and staying. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Lord Jesus, or Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And in those first nine, eight verses, we see the challenge. Just like with the storm, the challenge was the storm. In this case, the challenge is this man that is demon-possessed and beyond help. And we begin to see that Jesus has dominant authority over sin and Satan. We begin to see it by the response of the demonic to Jesus. We'll see it with, with Christ's handling of the situation. But Jesus has dominant authority over sin and Satan. And so we can rely on him. Let's break this down a little bit and look at some of the, the lessons that, from, from the text. And we'll just break it up in different sections. The first that we see in those, ver- those first verses has to do with the condition. The condition, and that's the first point in your notes. And the condition is distorted. Distorted in bondage. We cannot overcome sin and Satan without Jesus our Savior. We cannot, not we may not, we cannot overcome sin and Satan without Jesus our Savior. See, Mark here is telling a story, and and he's telling a story of the most drastic situation that Jesus would face. On, on the sea, the, the storm was the greatest storm that they could face. And they come to the demoniac, and this is one of the greatest infestations and, and um, greatest things that he would face as far as demonic oppression. Because of the number of demons. Because of the extent of their power and what they are doing. And, and so Mark here is saying, this is, this is major. This is something people don't face. Because to show Christ's authority, to show His power, He needed to show what He was up against. So if you look at at the verses, we see just how distorted this man was. How in bondage he was. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind Him anymore not even with a chain. And we get a picture of a man who breaks chains, a man who lives out in the, the, the tombs, the cemetery, a man that's crying out and screaming, a man that's naked 
and unclothed, just running around. He's cutting himself with stones. He is completely in bondage to the work of these demons. And we're reminded that the function of Satan, the goal of Satan, the goal of his demons, the goal of his work is always to distort what God has created. See, God created man in his image. And God created the world for man and woman in his image to live in communion with him. And Satan comes in and through temptation and through the fall, he distorts it and he perverts it. I think of the, the orcs in Lord of the Rings. Just a, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with that. But the orcs used to be normal creatures and because of evil and sin, they got twisted and, and just, I don't even know how to describe them. Yuck. And that was the, the, the purpose of that was to show the effect of evil. But that's what happened with the fall. That's what happened on creation. That's what happened with us. And, and we know that Satan, because of sin, because of our, our sin nature, has affected every part of who we are. Total depravity. And he has distorted every part of who we are. And so the stage is set of this man that is completely distorted. He's in bondage to sin. He's fully captive to the powers of evil. And he goes on in verse 3 to to say just how deep that is. He's beyond any human help, including his own help. There is nothing he can do against it. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him, literally to tame him. And these words Mark is, is using here are all words that were often used of wild animals. And so he's described as completely wild, completely affected by, by the power of Satan and the power of sin, and nothing could change that. It was an impossible situation. So if we think about it, he was exactly like we were before Christ. In bondage to sin. Unable to find Christ on our own. Unable to seek Christ. We know from God's Word that no one seeks Christ on their own. Completely in bondage to the work of Satan. And as I read this, yes, it's an extreme case and it's demon possession, but it just isn't different from what we we faced before Christ. When we were spiritually dead and in bondage to evil. I put a quote by C.S. Lewis in your worship folder. But he said this of himself before conversion, before Christ, and he described himself as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Who we'll find out in the coming verses was the name of this group of demons. My name was Legion. And Lewis got it. He got it that he was tying together this story with his state before Christ when we are powerless and hopeless. But that's not the end of the story. See, before Christ, our nature is so corrupted and so tainted by sin that sin 
Sin doesn't even have to be Satan's idea anymore. It's our own idea. In James 1, 14-18, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, gives forth death. And we see God's Word describing that, that sin then comes from our own desires. It comes from the, our sin nature and our bondage to sin. And we want more of it and we thirst after it even though it never quenches. And it gives birth to sin when we want and we don't get and it brings forth death. But we sometimes don't read the next three verses of James. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creation. And James here is comparing the work of sin and our bondage to it to the work of Jesus Christ and the freedom that He brings from sin. There's a humorous story of a little girl that was in a fight with her brother. Not mine. Mother came in and said, Why did you let the devil put it in your head to, to pull his hair and to kick him? The little girl thought about it for a little bit and she goes, well, the devil may have put it in my head to pull his hair, but the kicking him, that was all my idea. (laughs) And she's right. Because of our tainted nature before Christ, our desire is to sin. Our thoughts are to sin. Our inclination is to sin. And that's where this man was, the demoniac, He comes to Christ. And in verse 5, Night and day among the tombs and the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And then we see an interesting case, especially right after the time on the, the sea where the disciples didn't get who Christ was and the disciples didn't understand the extent of his power. We see an amazing response from the demon in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And that is a title of deity. It's a divine title. Because the demons knew who this was. Jesus existed in the Godhead from all eternity. From eternity past. And the demons knew exactly that this was God Himself in human form. And they shuddered. And they were desperate. And he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, being Jesus, was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion of Roman soldiers at the time would be anywhere from 5,600 to 6,000 soldiers. And it, it, there's, there's not necessarily that many demons because he's using it as an illustration. But the idea is that there are many. There are many. And we're going to see with the pigs that they're thrown into that there's over 2,000 pigs. So there's over 2,000 probably of these demons. 
And, and the, the idea of legion also brings the idea, and, and he brings it out that this is warfare. Because a legion was a, an army battalion or a warfare battalion. And so we see the gauntlet throwing down that this is spiritual warfare, that Satan is prepared for battle, and Jesus is facing this after a long day of teaching and a long night on the sea. But it's interesting because the demon recognized Jesus and his power and authority. In verse 9, Jesus asked, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he, being the demon, begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And it sets up the next part of the story. But the demon here comes begging in verse 12, begging Jesus or pleading, coming along, coming to him and saying, please don't do this. And, and the picture is one on his knees before someone of great authority because he's in the presence of true power. And we're reminded of James chapter 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in the first 11 verses, the, the stage is set. The, the, the impossible is presented. A man completely distorted and racked by bondage to sin and to Satan. And then a confrontation between Jesus and this man. And the disciples are just watching. They're watching. They've just come off the sea. Who is this man is still the question in their head. And then we get to point number two, the revelation. The revelation and its awesome power. Awesome power. And we see the magnitude of Christ's power over sin and Satan is uncontestable. In his awesome power, the magnitude of Christ's power over sin and Satan is uncontestable. Let's read verses 12 and 13. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so they, they asked Jesus for a request. Okay, we know that you have authority over us. You can send us to the abyss if you choose. Let us at least go to the pigs. We can stay in the area. And Jesus answers their, their request. Interesting. They didn't know what they were asking. And Jesus said, okay, that's what you want. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. Think of what that says to authority. He gave them permission. Okay, you can go, but only there. And he has absolute authority that is uncontestable. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And in a, a little command or a little permission, Jesus shows that he is absolute authority over sin and Satan. Let's put up some of those pictures because it's, it's just fun to see. This is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, some of the terrain. And you can see that there's some pretty steep slopes. And probably back then the Sea of Galilee was a higher, um, had more water in it, so it was higher. And so it was slopes like these that Jesus would have been up in here somewhere and, and the legion goes into the pigs and they just start running down and they run into the water. Can we go to next slide? I think I have a couple more. Here's sort of a view from the top that's hard to see, but that is quite a ways down there. 
And then if you look off in the distance, that's about what the terrain would look like, Sea of Galilee over here. So that just gives us an idea of what's going on. I, li I like pictures. I like to be able to picture what's going on. But Jesus exercises victory over Satan here. And it represents a coming victory over Satan on the cross. But it's victory that is absolute. See, the demons, when they leave a person, and we see this throughout the New Testament, when demons leave a person, they still are intent on destroying them. And, and, and just terrorizing them. And you see seizures, and you see all kinds of things happening. But in this case... Jesus sends them to the pigs, and it's the pigs they tortured. Pigs go nuts, rush down into the sea. And a lot of people have asked, well, why did Jesus do this to the pigs? The story's not about the pigs. The pigs are nothing compared to a man's soul. And I love animals, but we've got to get our priorities straight. Jesus is showing what the worth of a man's soul is. And by allowing them to go into the pigs, he is showing his disciples the magnitude of his power. He could have just banished them to the abyss and it would have been done, but the people wouldn't have seen how destructive and how, how magnificent the power of Jesus Christ was. And so he used the pigs, he used his creation to show his glory. And that is a good thing. It did throw the, the Jews into a quandary that are hearing this story because they don't really... Jews weren't allowed to eat pigs and, and this was they, they were defiled creatures and so they would have been cheering for that part of the story. But they don't want to cheer for Jesus. The irony of that is just rich as Jesus performs this act. But the effect on the pig shows the torment this man was in shows the vastness of the power of Jesus, shows the omnipotence of the servant Savior. Think of the numbers. Do you remember the disciples when they went to try to cast out demons at one point? They couldn't do it. They couldn't cast out one. And they come back to Jesus and say, why not? And he says, this one can only come out by prayer because it comes from the power of God. They couldn't even cast out one. And, and, and we have to see these stories because they're all told together. This story is told because he cast out thousands with a word. And that should begin to stretch our minds. And it did to the disciples because this was the, the like mega demon-possessed man. And it was no problem for Jesus. And so it stretches their understanding of what omnipotence is. It stretches their understanding that sin and Satan don't even have a speck of significance compared to Christ. And a speck of power. I remember a commercial a while back, Super Bowl commercial, Hurting Cats. Remember that? And they're hurting cats. And whenever it's something that's impossible for us, we think of, well, oh, that's just like hurting cats. And it's a silly example, but to the disciples, oh, casting out that many demons, that's hurting cats. That's impossible. But to Jesus, just a word. Just a word. 2,000. And when we look at a, a culture that is fascinated by the occult, 
by the satanic. When we look at the kind of movies that somehow make money, that dwell on that, I think we're drawn to power, but we're drawn to false power. Because Satan and the occult and Satan and his work don't hold a candle to Jesus Christ and who he is. And so the revelation in verses 12 and 13 is of an omnipotent God who has complete power over Satan. The God that came to take care of our sin. Third, third lesson, the miracle. The miracle. And the blank there is radical recreation. Radical recreation. Verses 14 and 15. The herdsmen, these are the, so, so the disciples are watching, but also the herdsmen of the pigs are watching. This is their job. This is their livelihood. Gone. And so the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, get this, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And so Mark's telling the story. It's impossible Then there's the confrontation between Satan and Jesus. Jesus with a word wins that confrontation. But it's not just about banishing the demons. It's about what he does in the man's life. And it's a radical recreation. And he makes him new. And just like the sea that was calmed, the man was calmed. And Mark here emphasizes that in verse 15. If you notice, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. Do you catch the next phrase? You know, the one who had the legion. Because Mark's point is the power of Christ. And so he reinforces just how deep the bondage this man was in. I think of 2 Corinthians 5.17. I love this verse. I cling to this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we see God create at the beginning of time. And Satan, through temptation in the fall, distort and attempt to to bring creation into bondage and to wreck every part of it. And then God through the power of Jesus Christ, recreates. He recreates and makes new. And that's what He did in our lives when we come to faith in Him. He recreates something new. And we become that man sitting there clothed, not screaming, able to talk, at the feet of Jesus, listening to Him. From the impossible to the recreated, to the new. Think about the the wonders of new life. Think about hearing the heartbeat of your child for the first time and the wonder of hearing... Because it's life. It's new life. And it's a miracle from Christ. May we have that same excitement when someone comes to Christ and the old is gone and they are a new creature, completely 
made new and recreated by the power of God. And you can hear the heartbeat of a life that is sold out to Christ. Verses 14 and 15 are are extreme makeover God's edition. Sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. When we think about sin and temptation in our lives, remember that you are new. You are new. See, at the beginning we talked about the bondage this man was in, and did you notice how we described that? That the bondage was before the work of Christ. We're helpless before the work of Christ. But after the work of Christ, after His saving power in our lives, after justification when we repent and come to Him in faith, that bondage is broken. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but we have the tools not to. We have the Holy Spirit living inside us. We have victory at our hands, but the problem is is we don't choose to go there. And we desire sin. And the Holy Spirit inside is saying, I've already beaten this. Victory is already here. Would you follow me? And in verses 14 through 20, the end of the text, we see the result. And as we read it, focus on two things. Focus on the townspeople that are around, what was their reaction, and the man who was cured, who was healed, who was reborn. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them, the people that ran up, so people are running up, and those that were there are describing, this is what happened. The demon-possessed man and to the pigs... And they, being the townspeople, they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And again, he answers their request. Okay. You sure? And in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Become one of his disciples. And he, being Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And Jesus leaves the region at the request of the townspeople, but he leaves a missionary. And he says, You go tell. And tell everyone you can what I've done who I am. And in Mark, we actually don't see a record of Jesus coming back to this region. Because we have two responses there. In, in point number four, it's the result of victory through surrender. Victory through surrender. We can experience God's victory over sin if we are willing to surrender. We can experience God's victory over sin if we are willing to surrender. And, and we see this clearly in the two different responses The first being the destructive response of the people. There was panic. In verse 14, they fled. They ran to the city. And and they, they have to deal with this. And they have to tell people. And they have to get rid of this man. 
In verse 15, we see fear when they see the man healed. They were afraid at at true power. But they didn't want to see God's greatness. They were like the disciples on the sea in that they both were afraid when they saw, when their eyes were opened to who God was. But the disciples on the sea wanted to see more and learn more. The people of the town said, leave us. Leave us. Can you imagine looking Jesus in the eye and saying, leave us? And we come back to what we talked about, about the unpardonable sin, when the work of the Holy Spirit is working, and we intentionally and deliberately reject that. They wanted Jesus to leave, maybe for financial reasons, thinking of their pigs, but he left. See, those people, they did not want to be changed. They liked their sin. They wallowed like pigs in their sin. Self, money, convenience. But the surrendered response in the last three verses was the man that followed and obeyed Jesus. The man that followed and obeyed Jesus. And there's, just as as you walk through it, you see different things. The first is that he was redeemed. He had faith in Christ and he was redeemed. He was recreated. He was changed and reborn by the work of God, the God of the universe. And unless we come to Christ in faith, there can be no victory over sin. And I say that because so many times we can play Christianity and we can think we're Christians and never have given ourselves in surrender to Christ. And then we wonder, why do I struggle with sin? Why do I keep doing these things? Why can I, can I not overcome these major areas of sin in my life? The first question we need to ask is, are you a Christian? Are you saved? It's a hard question to ask if we've gone to church 20 years. But it's the right question to start with. Without the saving work of Christ, without the power of Christ indwelling us, there can be no victory. This morning, I urge you to consider, have you surrendered in faith and repentance to Christ? That's the solution. We see some building blocks on top of that out of the verses. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Begged being the same word that's used of the demons begging Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, send us into the pigs. And now this man is is on his knees begging to go with him. And we see a man that is willing to follow and seek Jesus with all his heart. If we're struggling with sin, it's not enough to just avoid it. We need to replace it. And we need to replace it with a heart that is seeking to serve God, to follow Him. There's certain times and certain places that you tend to struggle with sin more. Take your Bible. Take some note cards with verses on them and replace that with an intent to follow Christ. And this man is is wanting to follow Christ with his life. But then Jesus goes on and says, no, and this is the one prayer or one request he doesn't answer to the affirmative in the story. Demons, yes. 
Townsmen, yes. Man who wants to follow me, no. And, and we were like, what? But Jesus had a bigger plan here, and this was the one that would, would follow his plan, that would obey. And so Jesus says the third thing, focus on what I've done for you. Focus on the work that I've done. Focus on the mercy that I've given you. See, sin is giving in to self. The antidote is looking at God and what He is doing. What He wants, not what I want. What has God done for you? How has God shown you mercy? And finally, it says, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And He obeyed. He went away and began to proclaim and preach it in the Decapolis, and people marveled and people came to Christ. And so, one of the ways we can conquer habitual sin is to obey, to do the work of Christ, to focus on telling people what Christ has done, to live for Him instead of self, which just breeds more sin. But this morning, I hope that we are just blown away by God's absolute authority over Satan and the demons and sin. And that is the same God that lives inside those that believe, that indwells us and empowers us and gives us strength. I'd like to close in prayer. And I'd like to pray for the Guatemala team as we close. Because Guatemala City is a dark place. It's a dark place, and I know there's concerns over safety and what Satan might do there. The same God that told 2,000 demons to go infest some pigs and die is the same God that is with our 21 members in Guatemala preaching His Word. May we trust Him and have confidence in Him. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I lift our team up in Guatemala. I pray for Your hand to be mightily on them, that You will go before them as they share Your Word. Lord, today as they were doing a children's story and then this week as they do VBS and as they do work projects and as they reach out to people, I pray that You would show them Your authority over Satan. Lord, that inroads would be made in Guatemala City and that Selvin and Lori and their ministry there would be bolstered by this. And Lord, that people would be saved and recreated out of the bondage of sin. Lord, I pray that they would come back with a faith that they can share with us. That they would say what you have done and the grace that they have seen. I pray for those little girls that yesterday accepted Christ. I pray that you would recreate them and help them as they grow in you and walk with you and as they are sanctified in you to stand strong for you. Lord, with our team, may you keep their energy up. May you strengthen them physically as well as spiritually that they would have strength for the task for four more days. Lord, we pray that Guatemala City is just the Decapolis. 
and that people that we leave there would continue to be missionaries alongside Selvin and Lori. Lord, I pray for the nations. May people come to know your power and your greatness, your love and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.